you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter 5. And I want to read verse 24, where the prophet Amos says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Led by Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs, affectionately known as Pastor Kevin or Rev Kev. He is the senior pastor of Franklin Community Church and founder of Franklin Community Development in Franklin, Tennessee. He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the Coffee House at Second and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Good morning, Pastor Kevin. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm two, two cups of coffee in this morning. So All right. This yeah, is I'm my ahead second of the game. too. Yeah. Okay. We're doing good. You may hear us sipping, but we are at the Coffee House, so. Uh, and welcome, listeners, to episode number three. We are here this morning to talk about capital punishment, um, and uh, we're going to dive right into the discussion here. Uh, I know, Pastor Kevin, you you said you've gone, uh, you know, a, a complete conversion on the issue. Could you kind of describe your journey in this? Yeah. Uh, first of all, the reason that we're talking about uh, this this week. Um, and uh, I know you may listen to the podcast at different times, but today is um, February the 19th, Wednesday. Tomorrow, Thursday, February the 20th, the state of Tennessee is uh, scheduled to execute another inmate, and uh, that'll be the seventh one in uh, less than two years. And so after a couple decades of not executing anyone, this, the state of Tennessee, for whatever reason, has decided to be one of the few states in the in the country that are executing now on a regular basis. So this will be uh, the seventh one. It'll be the fourth one since uh, Governor Lee has been governor, and uh, and there's at least three more scheduled uh, this year. So um, that's kind of why with with the execution being tomorrow, and and our church was involved in a march for mercy this past Sunday of um, walking from uh, Riverbend Prison, which is where death row is, to the state capitol. And then yesterday, a friend, of, a friend of mine and myself, we went to the state capitol and actually got to meet with the governor um, to encourage him to go and pray uh, with the guys on death row. Uh, they have written a letter uh, to, to Governor Lee, a one-sentence letter that basically says, we understand you're a man of faith. Uh, we would like for you to come pray with us. And it was signed by uh, 32 men on death row, which is over half of the men on death row. And uh, and we've been doing that the last three execution weeks just to try to bring attention to this and to encourage the governor to uh, to go and pray. So that's why we're talking about it this week because it's just kind of what's going on in the, in the state of Tennessee right now. So if you're listening from outside the state, uh, understand that's why we're talking about it uh, right now. My own journey, I, I don't know if it was a full conversion or not. I just, you know, growing up in my denomination, um, again, a very conservative denomination, uh, was taught um, – Mainly from Genesis nine six, where when uh, you know, Noah comes off the ark and and God basically says, if a, if you take a life, you have to give your life, and uh, was taught that that was part of the Noahic covenant, not the law of Moses. And so, since it predates the law of Moses, then it still applies. Um, I don't think that's correct. That's completely correct anymore. Uh, but even as a kid, I can remember uh, again growing up in Tennessee that. Uh, Every once in a while, I would come across the news that another inmate is going to be executed. It didn't happen a whole lot, but it would happen. And, uh, and I remember, especially when I got into high school and college even, that there was something inside my spirit that just didn't sit right about that. Uh, even though I would say, well, you know, that's, that's what they deserve, and the Bible says it's okay, it predates the Mosaic Law and all of that. 
it was just kind of unsettling. And then what was even more unsettling to me was um, seeing um, people, you know, conservative Christians, oftentimes pastors, um, almost glad that that was happening. And it, and it was like I wanted to say, okay, even if you're for the death penalty, it should break your heart that somebody is about to die. Uh, it, it shouldn't make you happy. And, uh, and, and so then, you know, <clears throat> over the course of time as a minister and reading the Gospels and, and, and then getting involved um, in, in a death row ministry, by the time I got involved in death row ministry, I was already at that point where this needs to stop. And, um, and so really, when I first started speaking out against it, it was more along the lines of, um, of uh, the arbitrary nature of which the death penalty is, is uh, given. Um, it's not the worst of the worst. It has to, a lot of it has to do with the color of your skin. It really has to do with the color and the gender of the person who was killed. Um, then it has to do with, with um, education. It has to do with economics. There's a saying that there's no rich people on death row. Um, and so, you know, can you afford your own lawyer or are you getting one appointed for you? Um, and then you find out it has to do with um, <clears throat> what part of the state you're from in Tennessee and then if it's an election year. And so basically, with all that said, in the state of Tennessee, if, if you're an African-American male and the, and the victim was a white female and you're from Memphis, Shelby County, and it's during an election year, uh, then there's a really good chance that you might get the death penalty. Whereas if it's in East Tennessee and uh, you, you, know, you and a friend uh, kill somebody for drugs or something like that and everybody is the same economic level and everybody's the same gender and everybody's the same race, well, then you might get life in prison, but you're not going to get death in prison. And so basically almost half the guys on death row in Tennessee are from Shelby County, which is Memphis, um, and, uh, and almost half are African-American um, and, because there's, you know, and they're from Memphis. And so it's just then you see just this arbitrary nature of who, and then I go to other prisons or Riverbend, for example, I can go to death row and, and uh, meet with guys who are there because they've been convicted of killing someone. And then I can go to unit one or unit three and meet with somebody who's killed multiple people. Uh, and they're never getting out of prison. They got life without parole. Uh, but okay, why did this person get life and this person get death when they did the same thing? And this person who got life, uh, the details of their crime are far more horrific than the person uh, who got death. And so then you start to realize that there's this it makes no sense how it's met, meted out. And so I've come to the conclusion and a saying that I came up with that um, some um, people against the death penalty have used, even if you can justify it. So even if you think the death penalty is just, we can't do it justly. And so we shouldn't do it at all. Yeah. But I think we should uh, should state here, you know, this is, this is a very... Um, hot button issue, emotional issue. People have very polarized viewpoints and there are Christian believers that have very different viewpoints along this spectrum. And you can go from, like you described, the, the far extreme of, of almost celebrating the death of somebody to acknowledging, no, this is a just response and believing that it's a biblical response to then maybe a more compassionate response would be this to then a complete abolitionist view uh, of of the death penalty and, and how it is is acted out. So I know for the listeners at home, you may and I be, hope I've been on every one of those places except for that. I'm happy somebody's dying. Yeah, all those other stages I think I've been at, but I don't think I've I've ever been in that situation where this is. Yes, this is a good thing. Yeah, well, and and I, I say this just just for the listeners that we don't you know the the show is is kind of. 
tagged along the, the line of we approach everything from no labels. So you may be at, at home uh, with a, a certain existing belief of, of how you approach the death penalty, whether you support or not. But we certainly don't want to lump anybody in with extremes. You kind of come yeah. to the table with, with your viewpoint. Obviously, um, you know, Pastor Kevin and I share a, a similar viewpoint in the the abolitionist view of, of the death penalty. But in, in our discussion today, I'm going to kind of uh, feed some viewpoints from the other side and different spectrums just to kind of fill out this. Yeah, and if I can add, I mean, this Absolutely. this would be a topic that we'll come back to probably multiple times, and, and hopefully we'll have some guests who can give um, another side. But we're still new at this, and so we're trying to work out the details of being of how to podcast. And so forgive us for at least these first few episodes. It's pretty much just been us two, but we hope – in the future to be able to add more voices. Yeah. Well, and, you know, this, this will air, hopefully, uh, you know, our ultimate prayer would be that, uh, that Governor Lee would, would step in and intervene in the, uh, the execution that is scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, if that does not happen, then another one is, will be scheduled for June. It's one in June and one in August, and I think one in October. Yeah. And so, ultimately, you know, our ultimate goal is to, to kind of spawn the discussion, to, to motivate people to have the discussion, but ultimately to, to take action uh, and put pressure on the governor to, to step in. Because as, as I understand, he, he does have sole power to, to intervene in a situation like this. But, uh, and, and he's a, a man of faith um, and, and was receptive uh, to your encounter yesterday, right? Yeah, and we can back up just just a second to talk about uh, the March for Mercy and, and our conversation with uh, the governor yesterday. Um, back in March, really, there was a move, March of 2019, there, a move started to build of um, asking the governor to come and uh, pray with the guys on death row. And really what happened, um, Shane Claiborne was visiting the guys on death row and asked them, what would you like, if you could say anything to the governor, what would you say? And one of the inmates, Pastor, Pastor Kevin Burns, who we've talked about in previous issues, um, said um, that he would he would like for the governor to come pray with him, and so um, that was formalized into this one sentence prayer, and then um, we started reaching out to the governor <clears throat> through the proper channels, trying to to get an audience with him, and we're not getting anywhere. And then when the um, and when the execution was scheduled last May, then we st- we just started this idea of March for Mercy, where we would gather on the weekend before an execution. And um, march nine miles from Riverbend to the state capitol. That first march, what happened was we, we did that on a Saturday. When we got to the state capitol, some people actually stayed in the state legislature outside 24-7 until Monday morning at 9. And then Monday morning at 9, when the governor's office opened, we went to the governor's office and hand-delivered uh, the letter. Now, he'd already received some copies of the letter in the mail and some postcards that had the letter on it. And he's received thousands of those now. Um, but we didn't get to talk to the governor. We talked to uh, a guy named Don Johnson, which was really interesting because the guy scheduled to be executed was also named Don Johnson. So that first encounter was a little surreal. And then we did it again. The next time somebody was scheduled to be executed, we did another march and then went to the governor's office on Monday um, of the week of the execution and talked to Don Johnson and, and never got to see the governor. During this time, people have been from all over the country really have been um, – sending postcards to the governor saying, go pray with the guys on death row. So we marched again this weekend. Um, Monday was President's Day, so the governor's office wasn't open, so we went Tuesday, and we just happened to be outside the governor's office. There were just two of us this time, 
and the governor was walking down the hall, and he stopped and was very gracious, and I commend him for that, and uh, we had a short three-minute maybe conversation with him. I told him, you know, we would really like for you to go pray with the the inmates. Here's the letter from them. Uh, We gave him a prayer uh, that uh, Kevin Burns had written that, you know, if you remind me, I'll read later on. And uh, he said he would look at that, and he seemed to be extremely sincere. And then he said, you know, you guys pray for me. And then I, then I said, well, why don't we pray right now? And he said, yes. And so we prayed in the hall, hallway with the governor right then and uh, had a good, positive, you know, three or four-minute conversation with the governor about, uh, about this very issue and, uh, and mainly about going to pray with the guys. Um, you know, we could talk about clemency another time, but the guy's desire really is just that um, they, he come and pray and with no political agenda behind it except for prayer. And that's what we've been encouraging the governor to do, and we'll continue to do so until he, uh, until he goes and prays. Yeah. Well, we had kind of started on the, uh, the topic of, of your journey and all of this, and I'll, I'll let you put it in your own words, but you had mentioned uh, a point in your life where you felt like God said, I want you to go to death row. Uh, can you kind of start maybe leading up to that and into what that experience has been like? Yeah, it was really... It was really interesting, uh, or just one of those occasions when you feel like that you know that God has spoken to you, and uh, our church had gotten involved in some prison ministry, um, doing jobs for life in the county jail. I started going to prisons in Honduras when I would go down there, and I had a, a good friend, an older gentleman, who had been doing prison ministry in the national area for as long as I can remember. And when I first started preaching when I was 15, one of the places I would go to preach was the, the county jail. Believe it or not, now you got to be 21 to go in. But back then, uh, and so it's like it, it came full circle. And so I was just in prayer one day and thinking about um, our church and, and our involvement in, in prison ministry and just really felt like God said, I heard God say, you need to go to death row. And it kind of came out of the blue because I never thought about that before. Um, I think in hindsight, uh, there was an article in the paper that week, and this was six or seven years ago, and there was an article in the paper that talked about the state getting ready to execute 11 inmates. And, uh, and so that may have been what stirred that. There was a troubling in my soul. Something needs to be done about this. Um, they did not do that 11. It got put back into the courts because of the drug protocol. But now they're doing those 11. Um, and so I did some research. I didn't even know how to get to death row. Didn't know anything about it. So in prayer one day, I just heard God say, go to death row. And uh, didn't know anything about it, didn't know how to get there, didn't know anyone who was serving on death row or anything. So I did some research, uh, made some uh, cold calls, just some names who came up on the Internet of people who were involved in death row ministries and uh, uh, was able to get in. Uh, met a friend of mine who maybe one day we'll have her on here, Jenny Alexander, who was the chaplain at the time. And uh, she got me in, and then I went through the process of getting my badge um, and it was a long, long process, but that, now that's been six years ago. And uh, one of the first persons I met when I w- went to death row was this inmate named Kevin Burns. And he, he stood up and gave me a big hug and, uh, and said, I've been praying for you. And uh, I was like, okay. Uh, what, you know? And so we had a good conversation. There was about eight of the inmates sitting around a table, and, and I just talked with them and shared with them. And, and then since that time, uh, Kevin Burns and I have become really good friends and really what he told me later was that he had been praying um, that God would send a pastor to death row. They had a lot of religious volunteers coming, but, but really no one who was, quote, a senior pastor. And, uh, and, so he had been, and so when I was introduced as a pastor, his immediate thought was, this is who I've been praying for. So he said, I've been praying for you. 
And so um, Kevin and I have become really good friends. We share the same name. Um, and uh, um, so over time, our church ordained him, which was another just kind of uh, I heard God say, I was talking to Kevin one day, um, because with Kevin, Kevin's been the chaplain's aide in the, on Riverbend for, in death row for a long time. And so we would just kind of go cell to cell and talk and pray with people. And he would introduce me to everybody. And the only reason they would talk to me is because KB was with me. And, uh, and so one day he was telling me how thankful he was that I was um, coming and that the guys really liked me coming and all that and that I was their pastor. And I said, no, I'm not their pastor. You're their pastor because you're here with them all the time and they respect you and the only reason they listen to me is because you're with me and on the way home that day I once again I heard God's spirit uh, say inside my soul if you really think Kevin's a pastor you need to ordain him and so I talked to the elders of our church he uh, then I talked to Kevin we licensed him uh, he went through the same process of ordination that I went through as far as what he had to do and and uh, and then we had an ordination service uh, at Riverbend and the, and the prison been over backwards and let us bring in people we had lots of people there uh, for that day, and uh, and so he's an ordained minister now, and uh, even the guards referred to him as Pastor Kevin, so that's what he's known as, so I have to realize when I'm there and they say Pastor Kevin, they're not talking to me, they're talking to, uh, they're talking to him, and, uh, and then we helped him, he has a church, uh, we call it the Church of Life, uh, where they try to meet and have a, a, a church service that's led by them, and uh, and it's just, it's been a beautiful thing just to see that relationship, and then to really get to know the guys on more of a a deep level, it, and in, in a weird way, and this is not why I did it, but when our church ordained Kevin and made him a pastor of our church, he's listed in our church program every Sunday, um, then that even um, made me more acceptable to the other guys on, on death row. I showed Kevin honor, and now they show me honor because because I recognize one of them as this is a human being who has worth and, and uh, who can serve God from inside, and right now, uh, KB is the one who's really ministering to these guys before they get taken away to be executed. They all have spiritual advisors who go with them, but it's really KB who is there with them up until the guards come and get them and move them from the cell to what they call death watch, where they'll stay for a few days before uh, before they're executed. And so Kevin is carrying a heavy burden right now because this is happening so many times now. Well, I, I you know I, I see the emotion in your your eyes now and, I, and I've seen it before as, you, as you've described that, that these are these are not just numbers or names or men in a cell like they've become your your friends and, and you care about it and you have uh, a personal connection with this uh, and I and I know you've you know like anything in in life if you don't have a personal connection to something it's often really difficult to empathize or to really understand and and that goes for you know, if you've never had a relationship with refugees, with immigrants, with you name it, whatever the, the person group is that you don't have experience with. Now, the flip side of it is if someone were to say, well, have you ever lost a loved one or a close friend to a, a violent crime in this? Um, and, you know, for me, I would say, no, I, I haven't. I, I know some people who have lost... Uh, family members in a, in a violent crime, but I don't have that personal experience. And I know there's a different connection then with, with that loss. Uh, can you share, you've, you've had some encounters, I think we touched on it a little bit on the previous episode of one situation. Um, and maybe there's listeners out there who have personal experiences with this that want to reach out to us through email, Twitter, uh, and kind of share your perspective. But what's, what's your thoughts on 
that. Yeah, well, thank you for asking that question because one of the things that oftentimes happens when you talk about um, capital punishment and you're coming from a, a anti-capital punishment perspective, people say, well, you're forgetting about the victim. And, uh, and that's not true at all. And, you know, there, there's an argument that can be made uh, that capital punishment uh, harms the victim um, and, or the victim's family as much as it does anyone else. And here's an example of that before I answer your question. But it costs approximately $2 million to execute someone, and that's because of the legal process. And when they're given the death penalty, then there's a series of appeals that come into place, and on average it's about 22 years from sentence of execution to actual ex- execution, and it costs $2 million during that time. So over that course of time, the, fam- the victim's family has to continually to come to court and relive this experience, hoping that at the end they're going to feel better uh, but they don't at the end, but they're hoping that they will. And so this pro- this process is a long, drawn-out process, and it has to be that way because you don't want to execute an innocent person. So you have to you have to have those appeals. If you shorten those appeals, the likelihood of, in- of executing a person who is innocent increase dramatically. Um, and so you have to have that appeal process, whereas if you think about it, okay, it costs $2 million, and those are taxpayer funds um, because it's all state-appointed attorneys at that point. Um, they can get a private attorney, but they don't have any money, so... So it's usually appointed to them. Um, if if somebody committed a murder um, and they were sentenced to life in prison and then just sent away, uh, the family could st- start to heal. They're never going to heal completely, but they could start to heal. And then that two, you could take a fraction of that $2 million that's spent on every case and put it in a, some type of trust fund that would help the victim's children go to college or get the counseling that they need. Um, and, there, you know, and all that would be part of restorative justice, which we talked about last week. And so that money would be more well spent on the victim's family uh, than it is on, uh, on uh, uh, the person who's committed a crime. And so, so there is that argument to be made that this is it, it's cheaper to keep people in prison for the rest of their life than it is to execute them. And the money that you are spending on the execution could be spent on the victim helping them to get the help um, that they need. But back to the question, um, my... Uh, uh, my wife had a cousin who was who was murdered, and uh, he was around our age. And so my wife grew up with him, and then when my wife and I started dating, we became friends, and uh, he was murdered, and I preached his funeral. Um, and um, the person who did the murder, and it was a, kind of a love triangle thing, so the person who did the murder, it was premeditated and all of that, uh, only ended up serving about 12 years total. He, he got about, I think, 18 years or something like that, or 20 years. He didn't get life. He got a short period of time, and then he got out on parole. And, uh, and I remember the family contacted me the first time he came up for parole. Uh, then, you know, I wrote a letter saying, no, I don't think he should be, he should be, uh, released. Um, and then, the, but then the second time he came up for parole, I don't remember ever getting contacted. And so then, uh, he was released and he served his time. I hope that he's, um, he's found Christ and I hope that he's doing really, really well, but I understand that side of it. And then I've, I've had a good friend whose sister was murdered as well. Um, and, and her kids. And so I, I understand that side of it as well, not so much as if it was my own personal family member, but I've walked through that experience with my family and with others who have lost, uh, who have lost loved ones. And so this is not about uh, not caring for the victim. There's a, there's a part of me, too, that thinks so that I, I pray, and uh, like at the prayer vigil tomorrow that we'll have while the execution is going on, we will pray for the victim's family as well as uh, the end of the death penalty. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll pray uh, for that, and my prayer is that these victims' families uh, are getting the spiritual help that they need as well. That there is someone with love and compassion um, who is reaching out to them and who is helping them deal with the grief uh, and who is helping them deal with that. Um, my calling has been 
to deal and to work with the person who has committed the crime. And it doesn't mean that I don't care for the victim. This is just what God has called me to do. And, and to be quite honest, I don't know if you could, do, like I would love to reach out to some of the victim's families or some of the people who I know that have, have, who have been convicted of killing the, those people. You know, but, but I don't know if, if you could do both. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't know if it's possible. So my prayer is pray for me as I minister to um, this side of the reality while I pray that the other side of it is getting the help and the counsel and the forgiveness that they need as well. What I'm hearing is, uh, is this, uh, this need for justice, which I guess we could probably attribute to being created in, in God's image, that God wants justice, and yet our, our human view of what does that justice actually look like may differ between people. Um, and you talk about just punitive justice versus restorative justice. I think we can all uh, uh, maybe come together in the idea of we want to seek justice, but the debate is, is there, uh, is there a, a, a more satisfying way through restorative justice than through punitive justice? And, uh, you know, that's something that uh, it's, a, it's a much bigger discussion. Uh, let's take a little break here, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation on all of this. The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of 2nd Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. All right, welcome back. We are in the middle of a discussion about capital punishment, the death penalty, um, and kind of a, a, a biblical view of, of that. And, and opinions differ. We've, uh, we've talked about uh, kind of a, a couple different viewpoints. Was there more you wanted to continue on what we were talking about before, kind of with your journey? And yeah, no, I mean, I think we've, we've covered it, um, you know, pretty well up to this point. So, well, there was a, there's a few uh, quotes, uh, you know, and, I know Christians should always be approaching it from, all right, what is ultimately, what is God's design, desire for this situation? And uh, we may be approaching it from different sides, but ultimately, what is the answer on that? And what has been the, the church's response? Because, you know, we live in this modern society. Some people may, th- you know, just think this is the way it's always been in my, in, in Christianity as a whole, and then in my denomination um, on that, so can you kind of touch on the the history of the Judeo Christian view on death penalty? Uh, you know, in a, in a really brief nutshell. Yeah, well, it's been all over the map as far as since um, uh, since the New Testament forward. Anyway, the New Test the Old Testament obviously had some laws that talked about uh, the death pun- the death penalty for for various reasons. Um, you know, anything from being disobedient to your parents to, uh, uh, to murder, uh, and then lots of things in between uh, from that. Um, the, way that as you, the way evangelicals look at the Old Testament is that there are um, kind of societal, cultural laws in the Old Testament, and then there are moral laws in the Old Testament. And the, and the societal, cultural laws no longer apply, but the moral laws do. So it then depends on do you put the capital punishment in the society uh, cultural kind of law or do you put it in the moral 
law, and because no one thinks that you should get the death penalty for um, being disobedient to your parents, except maybe a few parents in a moment of passion, but, but no one would, would say, well, this child disobeyed their parents, so let's put them to death. No one, even though that's what the Old Testament says. So we say, okay, that's, that's, a, cultural, that's a cultural thing, um, and so we're not, we're not going to do that. But for these um, most serious crimes, then we have to have this. And, uh, but then again, if, if you look at it that way, again, using um, Genesis 9-6, you say that it predates the, the law, but it's in the law of Moses. And so, you know, the law of Moses didn't do away with the Noahic law. It built on it. Um, and then ultimately the Sermon on the Mount then builds on the law of Moses. Um, and so that's where I come from. If you read Scripture in its totality, then I think it, there's a strong argument to be made that it's, it's anti-death penalty. You know, Jesus, is, was, Jesus was executed by the state, and that should have been the last execution. But then the Apostle Paul was executed as well, and and, and um, what most of the uh, disciples were executed. Um, and then in church history, at least the beginning of the church history, for those first 300 years, for the most part, Christians were, were anti-death penalty and they were pacifists, so they were anti-war and everything. But then things changed in the 300s AD when uh, Constantine, Roman emperor, um, supposedly became a Christian and made Christianity the official religion of the state. And really since that time... Uh, Things have changed, and so then you have, uh, you know, the early church then executing people who did not believe, like they were supposed to believe, and so, you know, um, you say the world, the the um, the earth is uh, is round and not flat. That goes against the teachings of Scripture at the time, and so you could be executed, and you have all these people burned at the stake because they were heretics, and so it's like we went to the other extreme uh, as well, and then and then in more modern history. I think because it, there's this idea of vengeance um, that you know that if you kill somebody, you need to be killed. That's the only way justice can be done. And and the churches, at least the evangelical churches, taught that. Uh, the more mainline churches did not. And so you have groups like the United Methodists who have a statement against the death penalty. Now the Catholic Church has a very very strong statement against the death penalty. The uh, Hispanic uh, Evangelical Association has a strong um, statement. The National Association of Evangelical has a pretty strong statement. Kind of, they kind of live. Le- they kind of give leeway for both sides, but they're coming down on this is not, you know, this is not right. And so we come, and so we're coming back to this idea that if there's another way for justice to be done without further violence, why not go that way? And we talked about Genesis nine six, um, you know, about that scripture. Uh, but then another scripture that people like to use is in Exodus, and then Jesus quotes from it, where it says, "An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth," um, without really realizing. Um, what that means, and in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says that, he says, you've heard that it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but now I tell you, uh, don't give in to that, basically. Now I tell you, there's a better way. That's not what that scripture meant. And in, in context, uh, the Old Testament, and the reason for that eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth, there were other cultural laws in that day that said the same thing. It wasn't to continue violence. It was to stop violence. Um, and so it was, you should not do more to the other person in other words, the punishment should fit the crime. That's the idea for that. Because what would happen in tribal type of situations or family situations, if I come in and, and I steal something from you, then you come and you steal more from me, and then you might beat somebody up in my family while you're stealing. And then in retaliation, I go back and I end up killing somebody from your family. And then in retaliation, you come and you kill Five people from my, f- and then it just, this cycle continues. And so the law is, no, 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 no. If all they took was a loaf of bread, that's all they need to give you. And so an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was meant to stop violence, not to, not to continue it. But now it's become this, whatever you did, that's what you would do. And I've heard 
all kinds of people, Christians say, you know, they find out that somebody did a crime and they think, well, they should take them outside and do this to them and do that to them. And, do, and I'm thinking, that's not, even, that's not even scriptural. That's not even what the Bible, you know, what the Bible teaches. People need to, there, there has to be a punitive aspect where people pay or they, there's consequences for your actions. But even that punitive aspect needs to have a restorative aspect behind it. There's a reason. You know, you're, you're removed from society because of a crime that you've done. Um, and that's good and that's just. But now while you're removed from society, how can, how can we help you um, and how can we address the, the, the things that, that caused you to be that way? Um, and then so that when you get restored, you can be let back out in society and become a contributing member of society. That's more, uh, that's more along the lines of what God, I think, teaches as a whole because he's a God of reconciliation. He's a God of restoration. Uh, he, he doesn't want to just punish us punitively. He wants us... Um, to you know his discipline is with love and uh, and Romans tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance it's not the punitive actions of God that lead us to repentance it's the kindness of God and Jesus said that we are to show mercy so we can receive mercy Um, and so all those things I think should affect how we view uh, crime in general capital punishment uh, in in particular and so um the history of the church, there are people on all sides of the death penalty issue. Well, I want to uh, address one of the, the statements that you made about God's plan as a whole or reading scripture in its totality. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of us have, have heard the, the, uh, the term reading something in context, you know, approaching uh, scripture in context and not just an isolated incident. But I think the idea of reading scripture in its totality is even different than reading something in context. Can you talk about what you mean by let's look at Scripture in its totality? Yeah, well, Scripture is a revelation of God. Not, now, it's a special revelation, so we're not talking about the book of Revelation. And so as, as the Bible unfolds, we learn more and more about God. And then when you come to Jesus, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the Greek word translated word is logos, or logic, or reason. And so basically... Everything we want to know about God, we find in Jesus. Jesus is the complete revelation of God. And so Jesus tells us a whole, a whole lot more about God than Genesis 9, verse 6, because it's a progressive revelation. It's, it's we learn, and then over time, we even learn more uh, from that. But it all, So now everything goes back to Jesus. And so really, as, as simple as it may sound, it would still be, what would Jesus do? Um, because how would Jesus respond in this situation? And if you don't think Jesus would be in a firing squad, or if you don't think Jesus would administer drugs, or if you don't think Jesus would pull the plug to electrocute someone because he's Jesus and he's telling us this, he is God, then, then we shouldn't do this. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, it's like it's, if he's the complete revelation of, of God, then what would Jesus do in this situation? And the one time in Scripture where um, Jesus w- was confronted with, um, a, a, it wasn't a, necessarily a crime, but a reason that somebody could be executed, the woman caught in adultery, even though in context um, no one had been killed for that in ages. But still, they brought the, the lady to Jesus and said, what would you, the law says she should be killed, what would you do? And Jesus, of course, forgives her and says, go and sin no more. And so the one place where uh, capital punishment is brought up to Jesus' attention, he shows mercy instead of uh, uh, instead of, of that. And then you could even look, as he's on the cross, he looks to the one and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
Um, and so he's still showing mercy, even while he's being executed by the state, he's still showing mercy. And so we know that Jesus is always going to show mercy. Um, and so we should always show mercy. So that's kind of that's kind of the idea that, okay, yeah, Genesis 9-6 says one thing about God, but then Jesus is the complete revelation of God. And what he seems to say, um, it, it's not contradictory, it's fulfillment, um, which, is, which is where the Bible uh, comes into play. Let, let me read this verse. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, a section of the Sermon on the Mount where, Mount where Jesus goes through six laws in particular and says, you've heard that it is said, but now I tell you this. But before he, he says all that, um, this is what is interesting, is interesting to me as I've been rereading this and going through this. In Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus spends several verses talking about that he is the fulfillment of the law. You know, that he, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And every jot and tittle of the law will be fulfilled. Or uh, another way to say it is Jesus didn't fulfill the law, he filled full the law. I mean, he, he brought it to its completion. Um, so he doesn't do away with it. And right after this long statement he makes about how he came to fulfill the law, he goes into these six statements. You have heard that it is said, and he mentions the law, but now I say to you. And what he's telling us is the law wasn't wrong. Our interpretation of what the law meant was wrong because he's not abolishing it. He's, he's fulfilling it. And so, um, and so he tells us, you have heard that it was said long ago, this is Matthew five twenty one. do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, would be in danger of the fire of hell. And so now Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, don't kill. But I'm telling you, if you, if, if you have uncontrolled anger in your heart, you're a murderer. And so we're all guilty of murder. Yeah. You, know, you know, from that, if Jesus really meant what he said, and then... And then he says, you know, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And that was said in Exodus. So you've heard that it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, even if he strikes you. And so it seems like Jesus is saying, don't even defend yourself. You know, don't even defend yourself. Uh, and so self-defense is not as much of a human right that maybe we think it is. Because Jesus says, no, no, if somebody's striking, don't even defend yourself. It's not an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, but, you know, turn to him your right cheek also, and if someone wants to sue you, let them sue you. And then he concludes that you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so to me, that in and of itself should cause us to question the validity of the death penalty. You know, because we're to show mercy, which is what he said, we're all guilty of murder. As the guys on death row tell me, we're all under a death sentence, right? Um, but yet, what, <laughs> we're to follow the way of Jesus. Um, and, uh, and the way of Jesus, I think, you know, I cannot picture Jesus taking somebody else's life for any reason. Yeah. And as a follower of Jesus, then, I shouldn't take somebody's life for any reason. Well, this, you know, this is just my... Uh my limited understanding here, but what I'm, what I'm hearing, it almost sounds like there was, if Jesus is the center point of this pendulum, you've got your Old Testament swing of, all right, here's the heart of God. The heart of God, Jesus like walked the earth in the flesh. Old Testament, you see where it swung far away from the, the heart or intent of God, and then you look at modern history and how we've 
swung in a different direction or even you know, almost the same as, as Old Testament in some of the, the hard-nosed application of justice and, and punitive justice. Uh, so the idea of, of, you know, the revelation in totality is, is interesting to me, is fascinating on how, okay, what, is, what does that actually mean? How do we, you know, from a modern audience, look at what Jesus said 2,000 years ago, commenting on practices that existed for thousands of years before that and, and how do we in 2020 mm-hmm. live out what God really intended because ultimately that's, that's what we should want is what does what does God really want in this not what do I feel comfortable with or what what is my what do my emotions motivate me to do or my logic tell me what to do yeah, it, it's really complicated and that's you know that's where uh, I, I think when it comes to capital punishment though I think uh, and this is not to be uh, this is not to be cruel. In the New Testament, when Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about spiritual gifts, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant in these things. And by that, he wasn't calling them stupid. He was just saying, you really haven't thought this through. And that's kind of how I feel with the majority of the, of the Christian church. I'm not saying um, that you're ignorant, but you haven't thought it through. And I think um, the reality is, I think most people in the churches, the death penalty doesn't affect them. They don't know anybody. They, they don't have anybody in their family who's ever been murdered. They don't know anybody who has killed somebody. Um, they don't, um, th- you know, they're not in proximity with the justice system. Um, and so it's really easy to hear what the Bible says, if you take a life, you've got to give your life. I don't really have time. I, I'm worried about my paycheck. I'm worried about my light bill. I'm worried about raising my kids. So I'm not, I, I don't really have time to... Um, invest some type of emotional, intellectual energy into thinking this through, so I'm just going to go with what I've been taught. Um, and what I, my challenge is, no, 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 you got to think this through um, because there are implications um, on, uh, on what's going on. Um, you know, in the U.S. history, uh, we, we practiced capital punishment for, in, in our history for murder, uh, for you know, horse thievery, <laughs> uh, for rape, for treason, uh, and then and maybe in some cases just for a combination of a lot, you've just been a really, really bad criminal back in the, you know, in the olden days, and, and we would have these hangings. And then, of course, lynchings, um, which were, you know, you, basically you could lynch a slave for disobedience or anything like, like that, and it, would, it was all considered, this is all justifiable because the Bible says that God has given the government the right to take a life in Romans 13, you know. And so now we've kind of got to the place where uh, the only there's two there's two reasons for capital punishment in the United States: uh, murder and then treason. So we don't kill people uh, for rape. We don't kill people for stealing automobiles, which would be the equivalent of stealing a horse, right? We don't do that anymore. And and I think we should all be happy we don't do those things. So now you got these two you got these two reasons. Um, but who's to say at some point in the future that that we would go back and we would start adding, like President Trump has talked about giving drug dealers the death sentence. I mean, he has talked about that publicly. You know, okay, so what? Now we're going to, you know, it, and again, it may just be him talking, but, but he has said that, um, that, you know, drug dealers should get, or maybe the drug dealers should be subject to capital punishment. And, uh, and so, all right, so what's the next one? You know, and so in, and so if we're going to allow it for this, we're going to allow it for other things. And then across the world, most countries don't have capital punishment, but some of those who do, 
Um, you know, there's still parts of the world where if you do commit adultery, you, you would be subject to execution under the law. Um, and so who's to say that we wouldn't uh, go down that path? And, and I didn't mean to bring it up now, but I, I want to. Just re- This came across my desk last night. Somebody uh, sent me some information, and then I did some research. But in the state of Tennessee, just in October the 10th, a bill has been inter- introduced by Senator Ogles uh, that Let me see, here's what it says. Be it resolved by the House of Representatives of the 111th General Assembly of the State of Tennessee, the Senate concurring, uh, that a majority of the members of each House concurring as shown by the yeas and nays entered into their journals, that it is proposed that Article 2 of the Constitution of Tennessee be amended by adding the following language as a new selection. The legislature has the power to authorize capital punishment for certain criminal defenses or certain criminal offenses. That's it. So if that passes, that opens up the door. Right, with the latest certain criminal offenses, but it doesn't list. doesn't list them. So that opens up the door where now the state could decide to kill anybody for any reason. Yeah. If that's passed, and this is not 1865. This is uh, this was filed February the 10th, 2020. Wow. And so, it's, it, where does it stop then? You know, where where does cap right now? Maybe people are comfortable with it just being murder and treason. But in our past, it was practiced for other things. And now, you know, th- this opens up the door to who knows where it could lead. As you can see, this is a complicated conversation. Um, we are going to end part one of this conversation right now. And then you can join us for part two in the next episode of Floods of Justice, where we discuss capital punishment and the death penalty. See you next time. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.